I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and thanks for downloading the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And in our journey back to the 16th century this week, we're going to talk about Henry VIII's wives, basically to get them out of the way. It's not that I'm against talking about Henry's romantic trials and tribulations, but there's so much more to him than his love life, yet that's what so often gets remembered of him. So I don't want to spend a lot of time in this podcast series talking about his divorces and annulments, but I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about it at all. The saga actually started with Henry's brother, named Arthur, after the legendary king, when his father, Henry VII, wanted to consolidate power after the bloody Wars of the Roses. Henry VIII was actually a second son, who was being groomed for a life in the church. Arthur was born in 1486, and when he was only about two years old, his parents began negotiating his marriage to a foreign princess. It was quite common for parents to begin marriage negotiations when their children were still very young. Not only could the negotiations take a long time, but after the agreement was finally reached, the family was already linked, so they could be allies for each other. Henry VII had to find a special bride for Arthur, not just any old foreign princess. His hold on the throne was still quite shaky, and he needed a powerful foreign ally to give him legitimacy, as well as provide for a smooth succession when the time came for Arthur to inherit the throne. He settled on the youngest daughter of the powerful ruling couple Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. Many of us heard their names for the first time in grade school, learning about the voyage of Columbus, as they had bankrolled that expedition. Ferdinand and Isabella were, arguably, the greatest rulers in Europe at the time, and were riding high driving the Muslims out of Spain, a feat that would be completed in 1492. Henry VII negotiated for Catherine of Aragon to wed Arthur. Born in 1485, she would grow into a proud woman, carrying herself regally, knowing that she was the daughter of great rulers and their blood ran through her. She was a fitting match for Arthur. In 1501, an almost 16-year-old Catherine made the journey to England to marry Arthur. They were wed in November in Old St. Paul's in London and moved to Ludlow Castle on the Welsh border. Less than six months later, Arthur died, probably of the sweating sickness. That left Catherine a widow, but one who was still young enough to marry and a good option for any young prince given her heritage and, more importantly, her dowry. Her state remained in flux for a year or so until she was betrothed to Arthur's younger brother, Henry. The Pope got involved in this one because a dispensation was needed since Henry and Arthur were brothers, and the Bible says that a man may not marry his brother's widow. Catherine had to vow that the marriage was never consummated, 
and the Pope signed the paperwork, and everyone was happy. Henry wasn't old enough to marry yet, being born in 1491, and thus almost seven years younger than Catherine. Surely they would have met, though, and one can only imagine the awe with which the young Henry viewed this mysterious Spanish princess, with long golden curls and a foreign accent. He also must have felt sorry for her, essentially trapped in another country, missing her family, and probably wanted to take care of her. Several years later, in 1505, a Spanish alliance wasn't so important to Henry VII any longer, and he actually called off the engagement which put Catherine in a state of flux again, a state that lasted for four years. When Henry VII died in 1509, one of the first things that the 17-year-old Henry VIII did was marry Catherine, now 24, practically a spinster in that time period. She was crowned with Henry VIII in June of 1509. Catherine became pregnant right away, but had a stillborn daughter. Another pregnancy quickly followed, and a young boy, Prince Henry, was born in 1511. He died when he was less than two months old, though. Catherine had another miscarriage and another son who died in infancy, and then Princess Mary was born and survived. There were more upsetting miscarriages, and the last pregnancy was recorded in 1518. So this really left Henry with a problem. He needed a male heir. The last time a woman had ruled England was Matilda in the 12th century, which was a time of tremendous upheaval and civil war, which all of the English remembered. Anyone who's read Ken Follett's The Pillars of the Earth will have some understanding of what life, life was like for people under Empress Matilda, as this is the time period in which that book is set. It was an awful time in English history, and while certainly it also could have happened under a male ruler, People just remembered that it was a female and associated all female rulers with weakness and corruption. Also remember that England had just come out of the Wars of the Roses, nearly a hundred years of civil war, and the last thing Henry VIII wanted was to be the cause of his dynasty ending, especially after just one generation. He also didn't particularly want to plunge England back into civil war, and this was a very real fear for him. He also had proof that he could have a living son, as his mistress, Bessie Blunt, bore him a son, Henry Fitzroy. In 1521, Anne Boleyn came on the scene. The date of her birth is uncertain. Most historians place it around 1501, but some say it was late as 1509. Either way, she spent her childhood in France and had an air of the exotic foreigner about her when she came back to England to have her marriage plans finalized. She spoke fluent French, was very intelligent, and had a taste for French clothing. She was also very different looking. While the ideal beauty in Henry's court had blonde hair and blue eyes, Anne had a dark complexion. She knew how to charm men, though, and in the early 1520s, she charmed Henry. But she was a master of the game of playing hard to get. Henry pursued her, and she gave him just enough interest back for him to know that she cared, but she never gave him to him and became his mistress. She always maintained that she would be his wife or nothing at all. Henry eventually petitioned the Pope for an annulment from Catherine on the grounds that his marriage to her was against the law of God for having married his brother's widow, and God's anger was evident in the fact that they had no surviving children. He conveniently forgot about Princess Mary at that point. Things got even more complicated 
because Catherine of Aragon's nephew, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, had the Pope in his custody. The last thing he was going to do was let his aunt be humiliated by the King of England and his mistress. So the Pope had to try to stall, set up these courts to try the legitimacy of the marriage, and all sorts of time-consuming things like that. This took years, a decade. It went on forever and ever. Things got more and more tense in the court, as there were essentially two queens, and Anne Boleyn officially was the maid of honor to Catherine of Aragon. The whole thing was just a mess. The timing was right for something radical to happen. In Germany, Martin Luther had been posting his protests against the Catholic Church, which led, for, led to the Protestant Reformation. There were also causes to be angry at the church in England as well, and while Henry initially defended the church, writing a paper against Luther that earned him the title Defender of the Faith from the Pope, he started to see this new religion as the answer to his problem. Anne embraced the new learning and had Protestant leanings, and began to put ideas into Henry's head, suggesting that he didn't need the Pope's permission to get a, a divorce. Surely he was the head of the church in England, God's representative on earth. The new clerics that the Boleyn family had promoted, like Thomas Cranmer and Cromwell, agreed, and they finally figured out a way to word it, so that England no longer reported to God through the Pope, but directly to God through the monarch. Needless to say, this didn't go over well with a lot of the establishment. Which we'll, get into for, which we'll get into later, but for now, it's enough to know that Henry declared himself the head of the church in England and basically told the Pope to shut up. In 1533, a decade after their affair first started, Anne eventually gave in to Henry and became pregnant. They were secretly wed, and then, when it wasn't possible to hide it any longer, they made their big declaration— thereby angering most of Europe. Henry was risking everything for Anne. I sometimes wonder how much he really believed in what he was doing. One would think he must really have believed in it, otherwise he wouldn't have put England in such a precarious position. But who knows? The problem started when Anne delivered a healthy baby girl. Princess Elizabeth, who would become Elizabeth I was not the boy that Anne had promised Henry, or that he believed he would have once he left Catherine, who by now was shut away and forced to be called the Princess Dowager of Wales in reference to her being Arthur's widow and not the Queen of England any longer. After another miscarriage, Henry's eyes started to wander again, and this time to Jane Seymour, one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting, who learned the skill of playing hard to get from Anne herself. Anne's position was precarious. While Catherine of Aragon had her lineage of great kings to fall back on, as well as being a princess in her own right, Anne didn't have that. The king made her, and the king could unmake her just as easily. If she could give him a son, though, her position would be secure. But the son never came. What did come were accusations from her opponents, who smelled blood and went in for the kill. She was accused of putting a spell on Henry VIII, of incest with her brother, and all sorts of other nasty crimes. Meanwhile, Henry was smitten with Jane Seymour, who was just about the opposite of Anne. She was quiet, very sweet-tempered, and never argued with him. 
In a final heartbreaking attempt to save herself, Anne actually used little Princess Elizabeth to beg Henry not to kill the mother of his child. But Henry was done with her. He'd spent over ten years doting on her. He'd risked everything for her, and she didn't deliver the one thing she had promised him over and over again, to give him a son. He was no better off with her than he was with Catherine. Sadly, Anne was executed a few days after her brother and the other men that she'd been accused of cheating on Henry with. For a while, Elizabeth's status was threatened, as many people assumed she wasn't Henry's after all, but her red hair and temperament that so matched her father's helped to drown out these rumors, though they would persist throughout her life. Henry married Jane Seymour, who gave him the son he needed, Edward, but she died in the process. Henry always referred to her as his favorite wife and was buried next to her when he finally died. But Henry finally had a son, though he was so worried about little Edward catching some sort of disease that he practically kept him locked up. The other accomplishment that Jane can claim is that she brought the children back together. The daughter of Catherine and the daughter of Anne came to spend Christmas with their father for the first time, and he not only recognized them as his own children, but seemed genuinely interested in getting to know them better. For a while, Henry was incredibly grief-stricken over his loss of Jane. He couldn't see ever marrying again until Cromwell and some of his other advisors put the notion in his head that he needed to for the sake of the realm, which was friendless after angering the Pope. A marriage with Anne of Cleves in present-day Germany, and very Protestant, was arranged. Henry was worried, though, essentially having a blind marriage, and he insisted that a portrait of her be sent to him before he decided. Hans Holbein was sent to paint Anne, and apparently he was a bit too flattering in his painting, as Henry took one look at her once she arrived and declared, I like her not. To make matters worse, she didn't speak much English, so they couldn't have had very interesting conversations. Henry quickly divorced her, though he offered her a deal she couldn't refuse. She would be referred to as Henry's sister, would be the second highest ranking lady in the land, second only to the future queen, and would receive generous support including castles, jewels, and lands of her own. She was smart enough not to turn this one down, and Anne of Cleves spent many more happy years in England, eventually becoming fairly close with Henry and his good friend. During the Anne of Cleves fiasco, some of Henry's advisors found the very young Catherine Howard. Catherine was an iffy choice for a bride. She was the first cousin of Anne Boleyn, and was raised in a sort of orphanage for unwanted children, though she came from noble blood. She was at least thirty years younger than Henry, and she made him feel like the handsome young knight he once was again. So he married her. The only problem was that she didn't really get it that she had to be faithful to this old man. And she was a young, immature girl who played around a bit too much. She was found guilty of having numerous affairs and was beheaded. She was only a teenager. Henry's final marriage was to Catherine Parr, who was twice a widow herself and seemed to have a knack of taking care of old men. Most likely, Henry recognized in her a kind soul who would nurture and care for him and be his friend as he was nearing the end of his life. Before marrying the king, Catherine had been courted by Thomas Seymour, brother to the late Queen Jane. 
She fell in love with him and expressed an interest in marrying him, but Henry asked her at the same time, and she felt it was more important for her to marry the king. After Henry died, she was able to renew the flame with Seymour, though this had disastrous consequences for her and almost equally disastrous for Princess Elizabeth. But that's another story. The important thing about Catherine Parr was her personal motto, which was, to be useful in everything I do, which included helping the king change the dressing on his leg ulcer and helping him move his by now morbidly obese frame around. She certainly lived up to it. So those are the lives of Henry VIII. Thanks for listening this week. The book I'm recommending this week is The Lives of Henry VIII by Antonia Fraser, which is written in a conversational style that will appeal to fiction as well as history lovers. It is also one of the first books I ever read about Henry's love life. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about holidays in Renaissance England, mostly because fall is coming, and with it, my own favorite holidays of Halloween and Thanksgiving. And remember, you can always go to the blog and leave comments and ideas. The address is http colon slash slash englandcast.blogspot.com. And thanks for listening. Blow, northern wind, a sandal may be sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrick, that soul is Sam Lee's on seat. Men's cool maiden of Lee's